Hey everybody, and welcome to the 16th uh, MyJS Story. This week we're going to be talking to Adam Baldwin. Adam, do you want to say hi? Howdy, everyone. Now, yeah, you were saying before the show that it's been a while since we talked. I'm trying to remember exactly how long it's been since we've had you on the show. It's probably been a couple of years, I would say. Seems yeah. like it. I just reached out to um, all of our past guests and said, hey, let's... Uh, you know, let's talk about this. So yeah, a uh, oh. node security project. It was 2013, December, 2013. So yeah, like three years. Wow. It's been uh, a while. That was early, early on node security. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, episode 89. And now we're on episode like, oh, we're almost at 250. So in fact, cool. I think we just recorded 251 and then I think we have 250 scheduled for next week or something. Gotcha. One of the nice things about being able to, uh, time shift <laughs> when you release stuff yeah everyone will get 250 before or yeah before 251 but yeah anyway so uh yeah i sent you a bunch of questions beforehand and we'll just work through those um i tend to ask questions and then i dig deeper on the parts that are interesting to me and if there are any points that you want to make along the way feel free sounds great all right the first question that i have is how did you get into programming Oh, well, that goes a long way back. Uh, so that started when I was eight. Uh, I got into uh, into basic. I had a 286, you know, the classic green screen. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, it came with came with basic. And there was, uh, you know, gorilla.baz. Uh, and I started by just teaching myself basic by modifying the, the existing program, right? Changing... Uh, you know, the, the simple algorithm to, you know, or simple equations to, you know, change the trajectory of the, you know, projectile and things like that. So that's how I got started um, with programming. Yeah. That's interesting. So are you trying to figure out how to stay current with Ruby and Rails? I'm putting on a two-day online conference called Ruby Remote Conf. You can check it out at rubyremoteconf.com. Like I said, it's a two-day conference where you can come and listen to speakers and experts from all around the world talk to you about issues pertaining to Ruby and web development. We have an online Slack channel, a roundtable discussion on Zoom, and all of the talks are given over Google Hangouts, and all of the talks will be streamed to you live. Come check us out at rubyremoteconf.com. That's interesting. So um, from the time you were eight until now, you became this genius and started working in JavaScript. How did that happen? Well, JavaScript, you know, I, I sort of got, it was probably the late nineties when I first started dabbling with, with, uh, with JavaScript, probably 97, 98. And, uh, that can was I, just, you know, I interrupt with a question. Sure. Had you been programming all that time from when you were eight until the nineties? Of course, I don't know how old you are. So maybe that was like two years. But. <laughs> uh, no, so, uh, I'm 37. So that would have been a long time ago. Um, okay. I have to figure that. Yeah, I basically graduated uh, '97. So these are all my security questions, by the way. Um, <laughs> yeah. So right. Uh, so yeah, graduated '97. So you know, I've been dabbling there. So in between, you know, when I started, and probably that time when I got into JavaScript, I uh, I had a mentorship when I was about well 15. Um, I sort of got in trouble you know, with a bulletin board system. And I got some guidance from 
uh, from somebody who owned the bulletin board system. Right. So, um, and they sort of like guided me learning, uh, then visual basic. Right. So I just kind of stepped up to visual basic as well as, uh, uh, learning things about reverse engineering. So getting into assembler and, and things like that, right. Learning how to take things apart, remove neg screens there, you know, there was neg screens back then and, uh, you know, copy protections and things like that. But, uh, uh, so yeah, and then, you know, sort of late nineties, uh, getting into web stuff, you know, basic web pages and things like that. That's where JavaScript kind of started to leak in, you know, basic, um, you know, just really simple stuff. Um, I can't, uh, you know, really remember what the heck we were doing with it, but it wasn't very, it wasn't very complex stuff, right? It was all client side. Uh huh. Yeah. And then sort of after that, you know, I, I sort of didn't really do much with JavaScript and, and it was more, uh, you know, Perl and, you know, C and assembler and things like that. But, uh, uh, sort of when I got back into JavaScript, uh, would have been really early days of node. Uh, and yet was building products. They just got to building some products some real time sort of, uh, products in node and JavaScript. And I had to figure out, you know, what the service area was, how do we secure these applications and things like that. And so that sort of brought me, you know, screaming back into the, uh, into node, you know, in JavaScript, um, you know, just having to, I had to understand that world. You know, I had to understand what, you know, what could it do, what its capabilities were, surface area, things like that. So that's, that's what recently pulled me back into JavaScript. Interesting. So you had done some JavaScript, um, you know, back in the nineties. It's funny cause, uh, you know, like, I'm, I'm 37 and I'm just like, that's old. I, ju- I just turned 37. So, uh, nice. yeah. So I, I get kind of the time frame there. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't take programming seriously until I got into it professionally, which was in 2006. And so I'm, I'm curious yeah, w- was it Node.js and just the capabilities there that brought you back to JavaScript, or was it was it something else about the language that that kind of captured your attention? Um, the the thing I like and the thing that I've enjoyed is 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 the lack of context switching between the front end and the back end. Um, because before that, what we were doing is you know we were writing HTML, CSS, JavaScript in the front end. And then uh, it was PHP for me on the back end. And so context switching between the two was always, you know, just a pain. Um, and so, you know, I can just write everything in one language. It's, it's to me, that's a um, huge advantage. It's interesting. I'm going to poke at that just a little bit because I've heard that. But, you know, I've I've gone in and tried to write some applications with, you know, like an Angular front end and a, an express backend, you know, or even just use mean stack, which is supposed to have, you know, some pretty codified ways of, of doing things. And I found that the context switching, I mean, it was still there because the concerns on the backend are different from the concerns on the front end and the framework on the backend is different from the framework on the front end. You still have that context switching, but you're speaking the same dialect, right? Like your, your syntax is roughly the same. So you're not having to, you know, there's, that nuance is out of the way. And for me, that was huge. Right. Okay. Um, but, uh, but then again, I don't write a lot of code. I read and the, you know, the, the team I work with, uh, we, we read and dissect code, which is almost a completely, you know, different experience than writing. Um, 
things like the spread operator. The spread operator, to me, you know, I, I run into that while I'm reading code and it looks like it looks like pseudocode and you're just like dot dot dot, yeah, this does something. Right? It doesn't, you know, you have to it's a whole new set of uh, uh, states and things that we have to keep in our heads when we're when we're reading and you know basically taking in JavaScript. So that's yeah, a little different perspective there. Uh, not a lot of the code I write hits production. <laughs> I'm kind of curious, and I'm I'm going to deviate a little bit from my questions here because you said um, we read a lot of code, we don't write a lot of code, and, and I'm kind of curious, like, what do you mean by that? Are you doing code reviews professionally for other companies, or? Yep. Yeah. So so Lyft Security does uh, does code reviews. So the the you know, we'll we'll sit down and a pull request comes in. Uh, you know, the, the biggest, the best example of that that I can give is uh, we audit all of the code that goes through NPM. So not the modules that third parties write, but actually NPM Inc. writes. So as they ship code, new features for their, you know, website or whatever, that hits our desk. Um, and so, you know, we're then reviewing that code, uh, you know, to see if there was, you know, any subtle bugs introduced that could have security impact. I want to hear the phone call where you get on and tell Isaac you're doing it wrong. It's happened. We haven't told Isaac that. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're very. I mean, um, that's the interesting things is is part of what we have to do is take a take a dev team from a position where vulnerability or you know bugs or you know those things kind of create that feeling of uneasiness to being comfortable with the fact that. Yeah, we could have a security issue, and we could just we know the protocol and practice to sort of take care of it. Um, so that's kind of you know once you start dealing with with bugs, they don't they you know or security issues, they sort of uh, stop uh, you know creating that that feeling of anxiety. Yeah, and it's interesting. We've had uh, we recently had Kim Carter on the show, and he was talking about um, security. Um, he, he has a book series called Holistic InfoSec for Web Developers. Yeah. And, and what I'm wondering is how much of what you do is then actual, hey, there's this security issue in the code versus just training people to not expose things. You know, how much how much of security is training your personnel to not give away your secrets versus um, actually writing secure code? It, it kind of goes hand in hand, right? Um, yeah. It, it, the... the Having your code reviewed by somebody, whether that's a peer, whether that's a you know third-party vendor or whatever, um, that feedback, right? That feedback loop, you're going to get that. You're going to get that feedback, and hopefully, you can um, you know adapt that into your thinking. So, you know, what I always what I always try to get across to developers is is as you're writing a piece of code, right? Like it's you're not going to know that you're doing something wrong until somebody points it out. And then when somebody points it out, you're going to have to, you know, with your discipline, you're going to have to work to make that. Um, it's got to feel wrong, right? Your spidey sense should kind of tingle when right. you, when you, you know, come across, um, this certain pattern. Um, and then you have to actively do something about it or, you know, put that reminder to do something about it. Um, yeah. So, it's just a feedback uh, cycle, I think. Right. That makes sense. So I'm going to loop us back around now. And I, th I think, um, you know, you, you've kind of talked about it a little bit, you know, where you're doing code reviews essentially for NPM Inc. And 
making that system secure, which affects the security for pretty much the entire JavaScript ecosystem. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, what? besides that, are there other contributions that you've made to the JavaScript community that people would recognize? Or is it mostly around the Node Security Project and NPM Inc.? Yeah, so the the, the few that, that I've uh, contributed to is, I mean, it's really been around security, right? That's, that's what I live and breathe, you know, every day. Um, and so really the Node Security Project, uh, which is now sort of going to be uh, off and managed by the foundation, um, you know, the node security project is my, you know, big contribution there. Um, the only other one that seems to stand out is I, you know, I started a, a library called helmet, which is, you know, just a little security, uh, framework, um, for security headers. Um, and that's now, uh, being, being, uh, managed by somebody else, but, uh, or, or maintained. Yeah. Gotcha. So, um, so yeah, so tell us a little bit more about what it's like to do these kinds of security reviews. Um, I mean, what, what do you look for? Are there, are, are you just looking for like a wasp top 10 or are you looking for other common things that only really show up in node projects or is there more to it than that? It's kind of, kind of both of those. Uh, I'll give you my generic, my generic version because, uh, the, the, the OS top 10 are definitely, you know, those are the top 10 for a reason, right? They're the, the most impactful and most common vulnerabilities that affect web applications or you know, applications. Um, obviously we build other things with node, you know, or JavaScript than just web applications, but that's the, you know, a common case. So the OS top 10 for sure. But my, my generic, my personal way of, you know, looking for, for vulnerabilities is, um, you know, I look for, uh, where data comes into the system, right? That could be files, that could be requests, that could be any number of ways. I look for the things that I have control over. Um, and then I look for where those end up, right? Where, do, what systems do those, does that piece of data flow through and how does it get, you know, transformed? How does it get modified? How does it get manipulated? What logic does that affect, right? So how does that data flow through the system? And then where does it end up? So does it end up in a database? Does it end up in a file? Does it end up, you know, um, going to another system? Or, you know, and what is that behavior? And what's that, that impact, right? And so you're looking at, you know, does it affect confidentiality, integrity, availability, those different sort of like that triad of, of you know, security principles there. Um, and, you know, what, what control and what, do I have and what assumptions are the developers making, right? Are they, are they checking that input? Um, are they, um, they might be sanitizing it on the way in, but not on the way out. Uh, and so really that's my methodology. And then it just, you know, it's a big matrix from there of, of things to check. And the thing with a good, with a good penetration tester or a good security auditor is that, um, they don't really need to know, you know, those specific technologies, those specific attacks, um, knowing those things makes them efficient. So if I, you know, go in and, and I start auditing a .NET application, right? Like I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm not good at that. I'm not very adept at it, but I, I know the different patterns that are going to show up in a typical attack or what could make a, for a vulnerability. And so then I can combine that and start looking, you know, looking for issues, um, that may be specific to .NET or, or do that research. So, 
Yeah, and it's it's interesting. I mean, I did QA before I was a full time developer, cool. and um, you know, I I wasn't like doing full on penetration tests or anything like that. But yeah, I mean, it was the same kind of thing, right? I know that SQL injection is kind of a bad thing on a web app. And right. so when I was testing, one of the things I would do is I would put in, the, you know, the semi-standard blah, 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 drop tables yep. and, you know, and try and break my way out of it. And usually mm -hmm. I had two or three different strings that I would try in each text field just, yep. just to give it a shot and see what would happen. And, um, you know, they were writing the apps in Ruby on Rails and Rails made it easy for you to avoid uh, those kinds of issues. Mm -hmm. Yep. But at the same time, if they ever took a shortcut, <laughs> I'd catch it. And, yep. you know, so understanding those definitely makes sense. But yeah, at the same time, you know, I'd hear about some other type of exploit. And so, yeah, I would just apply the pattern. You know, I didn't have to deeply understand how or why that worked. It was just, okay, um, run this against the application. And yeah, it works. And, and you know how hackers are thinking about these things. And so, you know what vectors they're probably going to try and exploit or at least exploit first. Yep. I mean, that's the, the standard pattern. You throw, you have a few of those strings, you start there again, if, it, if something falls out, all of a sudden the app, app 500s throws an error message, you know, you might have something. Uh, and then you revisit that yep. and go deeper. Yeah. And usually we were, you know, or doing these tests against systems, the test systems, we had full access to the system. So, if right. it dropped the table, I could go look and I'd know. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but yeah, most of the time, you know, they just do it the standard way and it wasn't an issue, but you just, cool. you, you never know. So, so do you, at this point, do you have a script that you follow for a lot of this stuff? So for the common that, exploits, you just, okay, here's the pile of scripts for these. And then we'll look at some of the other less common things or how, how do you structure that? Yeah. You sort of start with, um, you know, we, we tend to, you know, the, the common tools that we're using for a typical web application is like is, is like burp proxy in a web browser, right? So we do have some automation, and but really that automation is there to, uh, you know, shake out the common things and then, uh, you know, sort of like throw off those alarm bells again. If, if mm -hmm. the scanner, uh, you know, runs against an application and it doesn't find a finding on a particular route, but maybe it set off a bunch of 500 errors. I'm going to look at what those requests are and I'm going to see if I can, you know, maybe uh, massage them into being something that's, uh, you know, exploitable, right? Yeah. Um, that's, you know, so it's just a combination, but the, the power comes in the, you know, all developers want automation for this stuff, right? They want automated testing, they want automated security testing, and they want automated scanning. And that goes, so far we even you know we do as much automation as we can but at the end of the day right like if you're protecting you're, you're just protecting against automation then um and so if your your actual adversaries are humans that are you know thinking and trying to think of creative ways into your application uh -huh. and so we have to we have to do that and so you just you can't get away from you know you can't just fully automate those things but um you know and get get good deep coverage yeah that makes sense and yeah i mean they're going to know that your slip up may not be a standard thing mm -hmm. and so yeah they may just try something completely off the wall in the hopes that you know something sticks or they get some hint and that may be all they need yep. yeah and little things like error messages 
you know, it's easy to think, well, yeah, an info leak from an error message is not that big a deal. But those little, like, those little things are what add up uh, that are useful for an attacker, right? Like a, a, a path or um, you know, some other component or just, you know, like a, a stack trace. It becomes useful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So the next question is, what are you working on now? And I'm assuming that it's a lot along these same lines. Is there anything you <laughs> want to to add to this on as far as things that you're working on? Yeah, well, the, the thing is, is that we've, we're sort of to the point of, of, you know, we've kind of been focused on the dependency, uh, the dependency tree, right? Like that's what we've been focused on. Like we have this giant dependency tree uh, from like node applications, right? That, that we're uh-huh. consuming and that's, I'm still kind of pushing on that a little bit in terms of, um, you know, looking for vulnerabilities, but we're, we're really trying to do that at scale. Uh, an interesting project that I've been, uh, working on recently was, uh, doing sort of like behavioral analysis of all of the modules that get published that have install scripts because this last year that was that big sort of uproar about install scripts and the, the potential for a worm, um, you know, and the, the, you know, that sort of like, you know, cause this big stir of, of, you know, okay, NPM's insecure. And then yarn came out and disabled install scripts. And then they ultimately turned them on again because things are broken. Um, if you don't have them for some modules and, you know, that whole controversy got me thinking, I was like, how can we detect on publish, uh, or very soon after, can we detect if a module has intended malicious uh, maliciousness, right? And this is the, this is the malware problem of, of node, right? Like, you know, malware authors haven't solved this, uh, you know, it's kind of a cat and mouse game, but I thought, okay, because we've seen modules that open up reverse shells, you know, when they get installed, uh-huh. um, and we've seen, you know, those kind of things. And so I was like, and we've seen, you know, like the rim refalls that RMRF slash, right. And so I wanted to see if we could detect some of that behavior. And that's what I've been working on recently. Uh, over the new year, I published 140 uh, advisories that were showing modules that downloaded uh, that weren't actively insecure, like actively like trying to be malicious, but they were downloading content over an ins- over insecure protocol. They were downloading things over HTTP and then using them for compilation or execution or things like that. So you could man in the middle of those connections and and. Uh, you know, get, get code execution on a developer system as an example. Um, that's really so that's interesting. Kind of the, yeah. And, and the thing that you're talking about here, I mean, if there is one thing that people complain about that they don't understand and that is obscure from programmers, it's those dependencies. I mean, they go yeah. and they, they install the top level module that they need, but all the stuff that it brings in to do what it does. I mean, yep. nobody looks at that or if they do, then they complain, well, there's all this stuff here that I don't understand. Yeah, that's and that's the other challenge we have is that we don't have a registry of things that we have audited, right? Like that that info isn't out there. So getting intel to developers or security teams that are vetting modules is sort of the next the next level of of getting that sort of intel out there, um, so that you know they can easily search through the behavior, uh, the behavioral you know sort of model of these different. Uh, modules either on install or on run. I'm focusing on the ones that are on install because you know those are those are the interesting ones to me. But uh, yeah, yeah. Cool. Anything else you're working on that you want to talk about? Or hmm. 
Um, well, sort of that, like that's like the project, right? Like that's right. the kind of like the technical fun stuff. And on the, on the other hand, um, sort of getting and just kind of plugging the, uh, the mantra of, uh, security being sort of a, a, a journey, not a destination. Um, the, the analogy I use is there's an optical illusion called the Penrose stairs and it's, you're sort of like, you'll never reach the top. It's those stairs that just kind of keep winding up and up. It's the Escher-esque, um, sort of drawing. And that's the kind of the, my mantra for security, right? The continuous security. It's that you're always sort of taking that step up, taking that step forward. Uh, and as you, as you climb stairs, right? Like we're all, you know, we all love to climb stairs and when you get to the top, you're kind of tired, right? Well, as you're, as you mature, um, you, you know, each step up and each step forward gets a little bit more difficult. Right. And it's, it's, but it's just, it's something we have to keep doing. You know, it's, it's, you will never be, you'll never reach that hundred percent secure mark. You never reach the top. And, um, it's something to sort of just adapt into our, our lives into the, the way we develop into our discipline, um, the way we deploy things, you know, the way we, we talk about things, the way we invest in, you know, our, our developers and our education things like that. That's, it's just that, that sort of process that, uh, continuous, continuously always up and up and forward. Yep. Yeah. It makes sense. So do you have a name for the project that you've been working on to find these, uh, dependency or install issues? No, it's just sort of been a, uh, uh, in, internally it's, it's, it's Maleficent is the, is the code name, but, uh, <laughs> um, I, I'm a huge Disney fan, so there's my, there's my other security question. If you're if you're keeping track, um, it's funny you say that because uh, if you ask my wife who her favorite Disney character is, not Disney villain, D- Disney character, uh, it's Maleficent. Oh, interesting. So, well, that's a good that's a good choice. Yeah, uh, yeah. So that's kind of just been the the internal code name, but uh, I don't know. The, the The challenge is is figuring out how to get that information into the hands of say developers and have that be useful for something. Uh, it's probably more useful to say like a, you know, like a, a security team that's vetting modules or something, right. but, um, we'll see where that shows up. Um, yeah. Very cool. Well, um, th- those are all the questions except for picks. You ready to uh, shout out about some stuff? Sure. We'll come up with something. <laughs> Are you looking to expand your skills in mobile development? Have an idea for the next Angry Birds app? Then you need to check out iOS Remote Conf, produced by the same team that brings you your favorite devchat.tv podcasts like Ruby Rogues and iFreaks. Join us for two days of jam-packed fun and learning streamed to you live May 17th and 18th. Go check it out at iosremoteconf.com. Yeah. Very cool. Well, um... Those are all the questions except for picks. You ready to uh, shout out about some stuff? Sure. We'll come up with something. <laughs> all right. Well, um, you've been on the show, so you know what picks are. Um, I generally tell people it's stuff that, you know, at least recently has made your life better. So it could be a TV show or it could be a code tool. Um, yeah. What do you want to shout out about? Oh, man. Let's see. Let's, uh, let's start. Let's, en- let's encrypt. Right. Let's encrypt.com. Oh, good one. Good one. I think that that's, you know, given our, uh, uh, you know, need for encryption and need for that. Um, yeah. Get, get, 
you know, there's no reason not to have, you know, SSL certs on everything. So yeah, let's encrypt is a good one. Yep. I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, I think, you know, my, I, you know, I already plugged them earlier, but you know, NPM, uh, and, and this isn't really, this is, this is more of a, just a, a you know, uh, thanking them for, you know, their, their hard work, right? Like, uh, you know, we always have, we always can easily complain about how slow something is or how, you know, it doesn't have a feature we want, but I tell you, uh, you know, working on the inside with that team, uh, they do a lot of hard work for, uh, for everything we do. So for everything that we want, you know, all the features we want and things like that. So we'd be in a world of hurt without that registry. Yeah. And, uh, just to shout out in addition to that, um, we did interview, um, we've had Isaac on the show a few times, but uh, I did a, my JS story with Isaac about, I think it was like eight or nine episodes ago. Um, my, my JS story. And then, um, the other one that I'll point out is we also had Rebecca Turner from NPM come on and talk. So, so yeah, definitely cool stuff going on over there. And then of course we've had them on the show for regular panel episodes as well. Nice. Yeah. I can't think of anything else. Uh, shamelessly plug, but. Oh, those are, those are great. Um, I'm going to go ahead and shout out about a few things as well. Uh, the first one is, is um, and I'm not, not actually using this as part of my podcast setup today, but I have a Zoom H6, which is just a digital audio recorder. So you put an SD card in it, and it, it does a bunch of recording. The Zoom is really nice for things like um, if you're recording multiple uh, microphones into the same setup. Um, it kind of works that way. It has four um, inputs and then it also has like an onboard microphone that you can switch out depending on what kind of uh, recording pattern you want which is really nice it also has equalizers and volume knobs for all of the different inputs so I use the zoom h6 for uh, podcasting with my kids um, my son and I as we speak this Friday we're going to be setting up the website and doing the research for a podcast about video games and then we're just going to be doing that at an 11 year old's level, but you know, we'll be doing a podcast about video games. And so we'll probably play a video game for a month and talk about it on the podcast. And then we'll pick a different game and do the same thing. But um, anyway, so what I can do is I can plug that into the wall. It provides phantom power to the uh, podcast mics, which are sure SM 58 microphones. Um, those are about a hundred dollar microphones. They're decent microphones. Um, that's not what I'm talking into right now, but it's portable and they take a beating a little bit better than my main podcasting mic. So I can cart them around and fly to New York with them, which I've done and things like that. So in fact, if you listen to any of the Microsoft connect episodes, uh, they were done not with the Shure SM 58s, but with the, um, zoom H six microphone. And, uh, it was all like all the cords were, um, zip tied to chairs and tables and stuff. Um, you know, but then we had the over the ear microphones that were really nice, but anyway, so, um, and I did bring the sure SM 58 microphones just in case we needed them and they traveled really well, no damage done. Um, even though they were in my suitcase that got checked as luggage and all that stuff. So it was fine. Um, but yeah, I really like it as far as it's almost like a portable studio, you can take with you and it just comes in a little hard case and 
travels real well. So I'm going to pick that. And then um, another thing I'm going to pick is a security podcast that I have enjoyed off and on over the years. Um, I got overloaded on my podcast listening, so I unsubscribe, but I'll probably resubscribe <laughs> sometime soon. And that's Security Now with Steve Gibson. Oh, yeah. Um, just that's a good one. It, it's interesting to me, too, because a lot of the things that he talks about aren't things that I necessarily worry about in my day to day life. You know, this exploit on Windows or, you know, this right. particular web security bug or this API is not secure, not encrypted properly. But it really does give you the idea, hey, look, um, these things are being discovered, they're being published, and hey, look, this is the way people think about getting past the security on these systems. And so it's it's kind of an interesting education that way. They are a little bit long, but they're pretty darn awesome. Yeah. All right, Adam, if people want to find out what you're doing, read blog posts, check out tweets, anything like that, uh, look at code on GitHub, where do they go? Oh, let's see. Uh, it's github.com slash evil packet. Uh, if they want to find me on Twitter, it's uh, evil packet. Uh, evil packet. That's yeah, awesome. So that would be my handle. Uh, I don't use it very much anymore, but yeah. Uh, and then it's Adam underscore Baldwin on Twitter. Uh, if it's if you go to Adam Baldwin on Twitter, you'll find the actor and you'll be disappointed. You want the malicious actor. You want Adam underscore Baldwin. Gotcha. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's the actor. I'm the malicious actor. Yeah. Firefly. Good stuff. Right. Oh, now I'm sad. I know. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up. Uh, thanks for coming, Adam. All right. Thank you. I should have picked Firefly. Anyway, we'll wrap this one up and we'll catch you all next week. Bye. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.